how are you feeling? Are you fully recovered now? Um, I'd say ninety nine percent. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm back to full schedule, <clears throat> but eh, it's not a hundred percent yet. Hmm. But I mean, it's so it's it's just a minor throat irritation or something. I don't know, but it's 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 really insignificant. I, I notice it in the morning for a few minutes, and basically. Um, don't notice it until the next morning. <laughs> yes. When I lived in the UK, I used to have this phenomenon that I'd describe as a pet cold. That I would <laughs> Good name. <laughs> that I would kind of stroke on occasion, you know, and it was just my pet cold that was lingering around. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, yeah, that was, that was the, the nature of the... But I've never had anything like this before. I guess it's just getting old, you know? Hmm. I mean, because basically I haven't been, you know... I mean, I, I got runny nose... Once a year for a couple of days, maybe, you know, and that was it for 40 years. Mm. And uh, so, you know, this is a little bit different. <clears throat> but I'm back at the gym, and I figure if I'm back at the gym, I, although I, I'm not back to the level I was at, mm. but I didn't lose as much as I thought I was going to lose. I'm a little pleased with that, but, uh, you know, I'm not quite back there yet, but it's coming. Very good, very good. So what's the update with regards to the Learning Center? Ah, um, well, you know, it's not going that well. Ah. It, it, the next meeting was, like I say, the guy who came up with the idea wasn't there. He was out of town on business. Uh-huh. And he's got a lot of energy and a lot of presence. And so nothing much happened. It, there, a new person came. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't get much of a sense one way or another about that person. And um, and it was just more talk. And now we're supposed to meet again this Sunday. And two of the people said they can't come. And I'm not. I'm interested in, in actually working with two of those people there. Carl, the guy who came up with it, and this uh, Issa woman who teaches at the inner school, inner city school. Um I think I actually can work with those people. I think they're interesting and they're, you know. So we'll see. Okay. Okay. So I think I was all excited about it. Yeah. Uh, Carl was was uh, was really important. I I've, I've, I've had a couple conversations with him on Skype. Um and he's a real interesting guy. So like I say I I think uh, I don't know what's going to happen with these things. Maybe it'll pull together or maybe it won't. But I think probably Carl and Issa and I may end up at least having some more conversations. Well, that sounds promising. At least. Yes, it does. And and far well, yeah. We'll see. I don't know. It's it's just it's it's what it is, as they say. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. It's interesting. Um, I've been having feedback recently associated with some additional development with Noble Ape that I've been working on associated with the kind of evolutions of society and mapping these evolutions in and of themselves. And it was interesting, a recent podcast where you talked about the notion of thinking being a language narrative. And I think that's something that I have some sympathies towards, but also have some quite diverging views about on specific instances, but also the notion of underlying brain chemistry. Because the things that I find, for example, if I don't get enough sleep and I'm irritated and a wide variety of other factors, change very dramatically, irrespective of the language that's going on my, in oh, my sure. head. Oh, sure. 
So I think yeah. there's an interesting, there's an interesting, it's a, it's a multi-layer complex problem in simulation terms at least. And Language so, is, is only one channel. Certainly. That's all it is. It's a real powerful one, but it's just one of many channels. And the interesting thing in terms of modeling this is that I've been having some discussion with this fellow Bob Mottram in the UK about how one actually models uh, this kind of diverging internal <coughs> model log in some simulation sense. Which in and of wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. I want to hear that sentence again. <laughs> okay, so the internal the internal monologue actually changes people's behavior, obviously, because it's a it's a from your description a governing factor. Well, it's one of them. Again, exactly. it's not everything. It's just but, one of the factors. Okay, yeah, yeah. But a damned powerful one. That's the okay. that's important. Okay. So an important factor. Let's say that. Yeah. Um, so how one actually simulates this in external behavior is in and of itself quite interesting. I'm not see. That's what I'm not quite sure what that means to simulate it in outward behavior. Is that what you said? Well, the thing is that aside from talking to people, and that gives us some indication at least of the way people want to portray what is going on internally, the only way that we can get a sense of these things. I mean, think, for example, of uh, uh, some kind of fundamentalist religious group, for example. The external behaviors of these individuals in terms of collecting in groups, in terms of a wide variety of uh, physical behaviors, does at least portray something of uh, oh, solidify yeah the clothes like the way they dress yes, you know like certain exactly. groups you yeah, know yeah, yeah. sure yeah so, it's all uniforms yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> so the idea is how is this actual or firstly is this simulatable and i think folks that come to noble ape and certainly to the level of bob botcher are pretty well drinking from the same kool-aid that i am about the uh well, what do you mean by simulation okay. maybe i need to know more about okay. what you so, mean specifically a computer simulation i it's, it's interesting actually because we very rarely talk about uh, my specific views on these kind of things but my view is that the there's some um Almost, uh, well, there's a strange relationship between uh, observations in the external world and, and the idea of what a simulation is. And this in itself is very curious. So I've written quite heavily about this most recently, uh, publicly available through the, uh, what was it called? Um, Eight Brain... Eight Brain Narcissism Misses the Singularity, I think was the name of the, <laughs> the, name of the particular article that appeared online and got it. What's, wait, what's the name of it? Eight Brain Narcissism Misses the Singularity. <laughs> anyway, so this is why I think you should write, Heron, because you could come up with topics as good or better than this and write on them. Well, maybe we can collaborate on yeah, something sometime. Oh, there was some interesting thing. I, I had worked that one through maybe about three or four months ago. I think we have slightly diverging views with regards to... Just uh, about everything. Yeah, so I think it would be... <laughs> well, if we only wrote on where our ideas converged, I think it would be quite an interesting... Uh, and perhaps brief. It would be a little, like a little notebook of well, as they make. somebody said, it, it'll be what it is. It, it, it certainly <laughs> will be. Whether or not people would buy it would be another thing. But um, uh, so the idea of simulation is something which, in and of itself, is 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 ever changing. And I think my view of simulation is increasingly abstract. So the third book that I'm working on currently, I got out 
feel the can, can I stop you for so, a second? Because there's an idea floating around in my head, and it's really fragile. Okay. <laughs> okay. And it's I, I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure exactly how it's related here, but I see language itself as a form of is a simulation. No, that's, actually, that's exactly the point that I'm making. Yeah, and that yeah. so you're talking about making a simulation of a simulation, and I'm not sure you gain anything by doing that, oh, no, except you do. by getting. You do. Well, no, oh, is, okay. Well, that's what I'm asking, though. Okay, is, so, is that because so, it seems to me you can actually run a language machine. You don't have to simulate it. You build a, a system that generates language. No, I, I well, okay. So that's that's a different. That's what I call the narrative engine in terms of actually creating language that people can read. Okay, all right. So what? Do you, okay, you're not. You call that what a narrative engine? Here's what's interesting: is that the underlying linguistic simulation can be pumped into a narrative engine, and certainly the stuff that I'm talking about with Bob Mottram currently relates to taking the underlying. Um, uh, like linguistic simulation and then pumping it into what I'm calling the narrative engine. The narrative engine writes, well, initially would write ape script, but then would write proper English from that ape script, which I think is doable. Yeah. Anyway, so taking a step it's, back. It's uncompilable. You're, you're, you're <laughs> asking a series of questions and only getting piecemeal answers to them. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of keep a, a, a droppings of breadcrumbs at each of the points so I can answer from your original question to the to the. Well, listen, I don't even remember what the original... The original question was, what is a simulation to me? And the answer to that is um, increasingly divergent. But to summarise, it is something that I can represent in computational code in some way. Now, this doesn't okay, I got that. mean yeah. computational code as it exists currently, because a lot of the stuff that I've simulated, I've had to actually construct new things in order to create the kind of simulations that I want yeah. to simulate. So there's a, there's a... It doesn't necessarily be, need to be computable with the mathematics that we have currently, but it needs to have some form which can be computable. So, from that definition, I think there's actually a lot in the real world um, which exists purely in simulation form. Lots of the, you know, the legal system, the financial system. Oh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, right. Simulations, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. But then you all human think, organizations. I mean, the military. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, all of it. Businesses, everything. <laughs> it's amazing how well we've created these perfect, well, not perfect, but these simulations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're, they're perfect in and of themselves. They're perfect as of themselves. Well, they're what but they then, are. Again, yeah, it's exactly. not about good or bad. They're so, simply what they are, and they're amazingly complex, and we created them out of nothing. So in, increasingly, as, as listeners may get the uh, the idea of this thing is becoming increasingly abstract, but is being solidified as these things tend to by <clears> kind of <throat> academic papers occasionally. It also kind of pops into um, you know popular writing per the eight-brain narcissism writing. But on the kind of vanguard of this, and I'm not alone, there are a wide variety of other simulators out there doing their own particular daubings, but mine relates to this notion that, um, there, for example, as humans exist in a society, they don't need to be particularly bright in order for the society to function. The underlying intelligence that governs them, in fact, it's quite amazing how little intelligence entities in these environments need to have in order to do, uh, well, in order for the, you know, the... the Second level yeah. or third level. Yeah. So anyway, all this stuff is quite interesting. Yeah, those are called language monkeys. Well, you see, this is what's interesting. So when you add, the, okay, so the idea is that there must be this. This narrative is, firstly, 
is has elements where firstly people believe eventually or not necessarily believe but they have both reinforcing and negating factors so there are circumstances where and this is this is pure heron stone where basically the little monkey kind of tests out its language and gets language fed to it and tests its own language and kind of hybridizes and then is you know beaten into particular corners and what have you and from that there's an internal narrative which can be represented in human readable at least code output but then can then form into this narrative engine idea and the thing that I came to because I mean Bob Mottram is working kind of six months ahead of me on some areas and then I'm kind of feeding him other things to say well this stuff already exists here just use this kind of stuff and then he goes off in his own particular direction but most recently I've been working on this idea of simulation space which quite literally represents almost like the imagine on Facebook for example the people that you do your most interacting with this is very much a virtual abstract of what it means that they would then be closely in close proximity to you and those that you kind of communicate with tangentially or slightly further away. But there are also people that you have disputes with, maybe not necessarily on Facebook, but imagine that you were some kind of tribal ape-like creature. And then they kind of push away in various directions and you end up with these amazing real-time representations of social dynamics which you can't get just by observing these apes, you know, communicating with each other and wandering around. So what I've been able to observe recently is the, not only the forming of factions, but also how disputes cause breakaway groups and all these kind of things, beautifully graphically in kind of <laughs> a spatial representation. Mm. So from yeah. this is the idea of, well, what do, these, what do these divergent groups actually have in common? Do they share a common language? Do they, in fact, evolve their own language? Do they have secret languages? These kind of things. And how has their languages changed in the reinforcement, particularly when you have... Um, like falsified hate situations, very similar to the beginning of, I think, the Yugoslav conflict, where there was a very staged altercation, which then basically led to civil war. It was like they had TV cameras and someone threw a brick, and next thing you know, they're having a civil war. So these kind of things exist in a less elaborate but easily simulatable state where people kind of make false accusations in order to perturb the rest of the group kind of against. And this all can be simulated through Love Lake. So it's producing a lot of really quite interesting results currently, and certainly Bob Bottrom is putting it in a variety of directions. My feeling is that um, some of this will come through academic chapters, but a lot of it will probably just be woven into, um, you know, a second edition of the original, well, the secondary manuals, let's say, or the second manuals, or whatever they're called, um, because it's very difficult to actually understand this. And, and this is part of the visualisation thing. This is part of actually creating these social graphs and network diagrams, is to actually visually show this to people so they, are, they immediately become receptive to, irrespective of where the ape is located spatially, they have this social network. And through things like Facebook, thankfully, this is already becoming part of the vernacular in terms of understanding the way in which, you know, like-minded or reasonably interested folk kind of congregate virtually. Uh, so, no, I think it's producing some interesting stuff. And Bob's view is to take this in a different direction and create a very well, systematised, really, language simulation, which then, you know, describes the stuff that I've said, which is fundamentally where you come from as well, in terms of this idea of a, <coughs> a, a narrative in... Uh, well, uh, a kind of linguistic simulation that governs, uh, to a certain extent. Obviously, there are elements like hunger, lack of sleep, general irritation, various physical ailments, these kind of things that filter in as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, quite complex. Mm. <laughs> but um, 
the topic that I want to discuss this evening, if you didn't have any topics to float, was the reason or idea behind why we actually record these things and put them out there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a great idea. I think um, it's a great this topic. This is something that I've puzzled on for a while, but I'm, I'm interested in you starting the discussion. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> um... No, why don't you start? Okay, so here's here's why I've come to, and I've come to the fact that we both do it for what appears to be quite different reasons. Um, and, but I think they both have an underlying pathology to them. They're just a different pathology, basically. Um, from my from my earliest my earliest memories are basically recorded audio, and it's something from a very early age, um, in large part due to. Uh, various physical abnormalities, but also just due to a fascination with kind of technology and audio recording. Uh, I would interview various family members. So, how old were you? Three. <laughs> uh, so you, you're interviewing them uh, on what tape? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A little tape recorder, walking around interviewing people. Yeah. My grandfather, my old. uncle, my father, <laughs> my mother. The other interesting thing. That's is, so good to know that you're. Even you may possibly be weirder than me. I think we've already come to that view. Aaron. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Go on. That's so just anyway, I, because I'm I am you really. I manifested in published work, so it's not even. Yeah, you know, I don't even hide this thing. So from that, it's the idea, and the funny thing is that I, as a child, would not listen to recordings that I recorded five or six years ago, but certainly listen to recordings that I had recorded within a year or two, and this even appears in Field of Chaos, funnily enough. But there is a very much this idea of um, uh, holding moments in time, fundamentally. The idea that you can actually relive various experiences in audio form, various insights when things come together, and that in and of itself is quite impactful. My wife went away to California for about five days, um, and I somewhat foolishly, uh, while cruising iTunes, downloaded John Lennon's last recorded interview uh, with the view that if I could take at least one piece away from that, if he said one insightful thing, that it would have made the three ninety nine worthwhile. The thing that he did say was that um, he was hoping that the 80s would provide a degree of uh, maturity and resilience from the learning that was done in the 60s, which mm. is ultimately um, where the... Uh, when the Flowers Died, which was a, a book that I wrote in my late teens to try to explain what I saw with my parents and your generation uh, in terms of various kind of turning points and transitions and things which ultimately, you know, worked against um, their, their general and your general values in some fundamental form. But anyway, so this notion of recorded audio for me is very much about capturing a moment. But now it has become something even more abstract than that. Because I do high-volume audio editing. I mean, uh, uh, Model Rail Radio, for example, records five hours. Uh, and I have to produce that in a relatively tight turnaround. So I listen to that at double speed. I listen to all my podcasts now at double speed. In fact, when I listen to them at normal speed, it sounds like everyone is talking really, really slowly. And um, so I You know, that's something you should seriously consider 
that that is seriously going to change the way your nervous system functions with language. I think it does, fundamentally. Yeah, I and, don't know whether and, I'm talking and I'm, about it. And I'm not sure it's good or bad. It's not a matter of good or bad, but it is going to have consequences. Oh, without question. I yeah. think the thing that interests me is that I was already someone who could um, talk very quickly about a subject with, you know, with relative precision. Yeah. I, the last job I worked at in the UK, I was famous for giving technical discussions that have previously taken about two hours in about half an hour. Yeah. I have had the ability, I've been told, for example, for IP presentations, you've just taken 30 minutes, you'll need to give this in 10 minutes and been able to do it in 10 minutes on the second take, so to speak. Yeah. So somehow I can compress things. But I think also um, a lot of that is lost with regular humans. You know, <laughs> well, that's the whole point. I'm saying, does anybody get it though? Yeah, <laughs> that's the point. Yeah. So maybe they should play it at half speed, and then they might. Start, I don't know whether it works that way. But, well, no, but it, all of these things are real things with real effects, though. That's what's certainly. important to get. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, from my own my own background, this notion of the the main thing is that I get a huge amount of positive feedback. Which is not normally physical feedback. It doesn't come in any real form aside from email until recently this train arrived. Um, but aside from that and occasional uh, packages, really all the stuff that I do in this way is very much ethereal. It hasn't changed any... Pro aside from what you described, this is what we share, is this notion that we now have a community. It's a non-physical community. It's very much a virtual community. But by putting those e uh, these ideas out there... In some fundamental sense, we are gathering together like-minded folk who are, as you describe it, if I may paraphrase, probably considered freaks or on the boundaries of society in their general... Some of them, not, no, not all, all I mean, certainly many of them, but some of them are quite successful and, uh, you know, all sorts of kinds of people. If those people could contact me, I'd like to hear from you. Um, but, uh, no, seriously, I think what we are doing here is actually uh, giving a voice to a, a number of additional people. And certainly that's what I've captured, or what I think I've captured in Model Rail Radio. And I come back to that just because of its success, not because... You see, I've started recording Biota Live again on TalkShoe. Irrespective of it's just me giving a monologue, I'm still going yeah. to record it because I like the idea that people will eventually start calling in again when they get used to yeah. the fact that's back on. At least they know somebody's there. Exactly. Yeah. And that mainly came through feedback of listeners, that there were actually a number of folk that, because I wasn't on doing it as frequently as I had previously, had actually gone back and started listening to the archive. And this is another phenomenon, that not only are we recording this audio and putting it out, but we are also making available almost the entire archive for folks to discover and listen to. And... It was put to me recently in another recording that I do with our favourite um, now no longer communist listed Jonathan J. Reinhardt that I have a relatively interesting view with regards to death. And I think perhaps there's some element of my view with regards to death in producing this recorded audio as well. Because I really get the sense that um, the only permanency that we have in any fleeting form is our impact on others. As physical bodies or what have you, we have absolutely no permanency. But as we exist on in ideas, we have some meaningful permanency. And that has been, a, well, a motivating factor in a lot of my work, actually, from Noble Ape, prior to Noble Ape and up until today. That if I can have 
affected even a couple of people, and I know that I've done that. I mean, I've had immense uh, and rewarding feedback, just the notion that I can go to a place like Google, for example, and people there know my work with Noble Ape. Some of them are ex-Apple employees, some of them have used Noble Ape. The fact that there's a community associated with these relatively abstract ideas, and now, in such a short period of time, under two years, I've been able to cultivate a greater group of people in this bizarre model rail fraternity <laughs> seems to emphasize that there may be actually like a third or fourth or fifth group that could be cultivated through this thing so now i the the optimism that i have with regards to the things that i do in large part comes through this form it's very different than writing and releasing software or even writing and releasing text because that is i don't know less impactful but certainly if we have a if we have a joint uh, pathology or a linked pathology, it is with our own enjoyment of spoken word and our understanding of others' enjoyment of spoken word. Now, in your case, it's quite different because in your case, you have almost verbatim in some circumstances the same conversation with potentially now tens, if not hundreds, of folk. Yeah, and that in yeah. and of itself is quite a different thing than yeah. what I've described. Um. And what, found me, what I found interesting recently was your discussion with Dan, because I found very early on in the discussion, I thought, this guy's exactly... You see, I feel we are quite different. I mean, we're different in age, we're different in location, we're... Some yeah, yeah everything, almost everything. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You, you couldn't get too much more different than you I and me. <laughs> I can imagine greater divergence, but anyway. But Dan, I really felt, was almost instantly a kindred spirit. I mean, your discussion associated with Est and Buddhism and, uh, you know... Yeah, he's great. I just met him. I mean, he's a new guy in yeah. my life, and he's, he's, <laughs> he's awesome. immediately, it was just like you could just hear the clicking going on. It was, yeah. um, it was phenomenal. And I think, um, I mean, this, this is very much a therapeutic form for both of us, but we get different kinds of therapy from it. And I think, ultimately, and this you, you may think this is bizarre, but I actually consider myself slightly more of a hermit than you are, quite fundamentally. Um, um, that could be. In terms well, it depends of, on how you define hermit, obviously. Well, yes, I think the... I think the it's funny, actually, because um, I guess I can repress elements of my gregariousness and have done so... Well, I've had to do so um, for, for various aspects of my life. But this is ultimately a representation of... And it's very funny because I the, the podcast I did with Jonathan J. Reinhardt is very different again. So I've got now five podcasts, all well, relatively on different topics. Obviously, Ape Reality and Biotal Live are basically on roughly the same thing. But all the other podcasts are on different topics, completely different topics. And this one doesn't even have a topic. Well, kind of does, Heron. I mean, I think the folks... No, that's to the this, topic. Yeah. The folks that listen to this know that there's some kind of, you know, eclectic futurism kind of, you know, butterfly, 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 language monkeys. <laughs> language monkeys, yeah. You know? In fact, um, yeah, so I think this this recording does have a topic. The thing that interests me about this was that my original hope was actually to inject more voices into this discussion, 
And now I've just actually gotten comfortable to the fact that it's going to be you and me recording a podcast whenever we can. Well, yeah, whenever we feel like it. Yeah, Yeah. which is is just fine with me. As I I go through this kind of exploration of my own pathology associated with these recordings and these kind of things, what, what is your sense of your own experience? Well, I'm just curious that you keep using the word pathology as though that's just the obvious container to put this in. Or whether you just think that's clever, or or whether you really mean pathology. I think that the when I spend how much how many hours do I put into model rail radio? Well, whatever is a lot. You put a lot yeah. of your life yeah. into this. Yeah, and I do so for no well up until very recently no tangible rewards. No, you do it because it's fun. Isn't it? Well, Shit, if you're not having fun, why are you and you're not making money, then why the fuck why would you be doing pathology? <laughs> well, you're right. Well, see for in for you, you're right. It is a pathology, but it's not a pathology for me. Mm. So you must be a very 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 patient man then. I mean, I think the the nature of the kind of discussions that you have. Listen, I understand the process that I'm involved in is at least tens of thousands of years old. I don't expect to see uh, a lot of results in the next 10 years anyway, and, and I expect to see more in the future and faster, but, but uh, it would be silly to expect that right now. So I just do my work. But I guess ultimately on some level, the choice to have the same conversation almost verbatim is very much <laughs> Listen, what's important, this very question has come up, and a guy named Irving Goffman, a sociologist, answered this for me, that what's important in storytelling is first hearings, not first tellings. And if it's new to them, as a teacher, well, that's what a teacher does. He gives the same lecture year after year. You know, but if he's worked on this lecture and and it's the best he can come up with, then that's the thing to be doing. Mm, I don't think. Well, maybe grade school teach. Not, not even grade school teachers teach the same thing year after year. Well, listen, if you're teaching graduate, uh, you know, integral calculus, uh, you're teaching the same thing year after year. Well. The textbooks change, and the way in which things are taught typically change as well. True, you are doing roughly the same ideas, but that doesn't map. Well, you still have to talk about the the same, same, and they're talking about the same subject. Again, it's very repetitive, and you're right. I mean, I talk and tell the same stories over and over. I'm perfectly, but again, I'm not... I am there for a conversation. Well, it depends on who I'm talking to. See, that's the beauty of it, is people are at all sorts of levels of development about sophistication uh, about language. And uh, if I'm going to have any kind of conversation with them, it's got to be at at the level they can understand. You know, if I talk about some of the stuff with some people, they this would be useless. But it, it seems important that to me, anyway, I think this language stuff is important. So, I agree. I agree. But so, the choice is at some point to use exactly the same language that you've used 
with many others previously, irrespective right. of... And that is an interesting choice. I think yeah. it's the... The problem there is that if you're looking to improve your methods, the only way to do that is through experimental change. Oh, that's, that's why I'm there. The same... that's, that's exactly why I'm here. Okay. And I do change. A lot of the stories are the same. Some of the wording is the same. But there's a lot of stories I've dropped, and some new ones have showed up. That's exactly why I'm here, to get input, to talk to all sorts of people on all sorts of levels of sophistication and try and talk meaningfully with them. I have an appreciation for that. So, the And I hope I am, and I know I am getting better. That's the thing is uh, more people are, are responding to this than, than in the past. You know, I mean, actually there are a number of people who... Well, I, I don't, you know, I'm still uncomfortable with that idea of being a teacher. But anyway, there are people who get the importance of language and, and are very interested in learning how to get better at it. And I, and I think this because, again, the world is changing. People are more sophisticated now than they were before. And I'm, I'm getting a little better at talking about it than I was before. And I hope I'll be getting better about it in the next couple of years. So returning to this idea that the taking control of the internal narrative has various physical effects. Physical effects? Yes. What does, well, for example... Why, why, why not just say effects? I mean, why, why limit it to physical effects? Well, let's just explore physical effects. Let's just okay. explore physical effects. All right. Because I'm interested in the... Well... We've had some discussion associated with the term enlightenment. We've had some discussion yeah. in the past in terms of these things. The Heronstone discussion in its perfect form, if such a thing yeah. exists, even <laughs> oh, in the theoretical good. realm, yeah, right. should have relatively dramatic or at least uh, not necessarily prolonged, but should at least start a series of dominoes falling in a particular direction that will change someone. This yes. Is, this is your yeah. Yeah. Direct view. Yes. And that change affects not only their internal, but will also have some. Well, it'll have repercussions in every aspect of their life. <laughs> I mean, if you really get in and become, start consciously dealing with your own language machine, it's going to change every aspect of your existence. Mm. So, so I mean, that's why I say when you say it's going to have physical, well, it's going to have repercussions in every domain of your life. True. Language touches all of it. True. True. Uh, I'm not. I'm not arguing that. Uh, that's the the point I'm saying is the thing that interests me, and this is this is this is your impact on my life, is that at points of extreme stress and things like that, I can immediately fall away from that if it's an external stress, based on. The idea that really I have, that my internal self is my own domain, and to a large extent, my external self is also my own domain. And I'm not sure what that means, even. What that means is that once you take control of your internal language, once you take control of all the stuff that is piled onto you that is supposed to give emotional effects and change you internally to make you a a uh, fully formed member of the dubious society. Oh, so I've never said... Oh, I'm saying, go on. Keep, I'm sorry. Keep <laughs> so, sorry. That little bit just became parent. Okay. Yeah. So when you take control of that, 
you actually change in terms of your ability to deal with a wide variety of factors which are not only narrative-driven, but also can be driven in a wide variety of other things. And this is the thing that interests me, is that you, in talking to beginners or people that are starting out, you don't uh, in any way give any kind of, you know, this is what the future may hold or these kind of things, but you will come to a stage where enough of your students have gotten to a sufficient level that they are looking for a more intermediate or advanced discussion yeah. with you. Yeah, that's, that's, that, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's very interesting. So I guess my... I'm glad you're out there listening to this <laughs> shit because, like I say, I never do. But you can give me insights into what's actually going on that I could never have. Mm. So... You, you have a student that comes back to you and says, Heron, I've tried as best, as best as I can, and I think the interesting idea was the 10%, which seems to be a new thing. Yeah, a new figure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've just <laughs> recently come to that. I've gotten more harsh. It used to be 20, but no. No, that you can at least take control of the thing. But the, <laughs> the idea of um, taking control of your inner self, your emotions, your... The things that... No, I, well, I didn't say anything about oh, that. No, 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 no. But let's, <laughs> let's put this one through here. Because a lot of the emotional effects of the language monkey, particularly through things like religion and various um, almost uh, almost kind of caste-like levelings that most societies... Jealousy is a real yes, good exactly. one. <laughs> so, exactly. So when you, when you liberate yourself from these kind of things through understanding that this is part of some bizarro programming exercise that uh, you know others have both intentionally and unintentionally done you then come to a different kind of understanding and the thing that interests me is that you have enough people that are talking about this idea now that really the next phase is when you have um, well uh, maybe grade Heronstone grade school graduates come through this <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. looking to empower, at least talk with other like-minded folk. The question then becomes how, I mean, my, my own parceling of this has been to generate creative things, and this predates my interaction with you, but generating, you know, things that take a good amount of time, a good amount of planning, but most other people are just feeling bad about their jobs or, you know, some degree of angst associated with various relationships. I kind of offloaded that, what I would describe as emotional baggage, what you might describe as language monkey uh, narrative or what have you, yeah. and refocused it. And I think what you will see come through your students, perhaps percolate through, is a lot of focused free time or free emotional time, which they can then devote to things. Oh, that's and this good, is the, good one. This is the, oh, this yeah. is the kind of... You know, that's great, that's good for the sales brochure, man. <laughs> well, that is no, 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 that's no. really well. No, I'm quite serious. I mean, this is one of the things I'm. I mean, like I said, this is part of the process. Is how do you package something so that it's so that it makes sense to people? You know, so that it actually. So that, I mean, can you give them a story that 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 is real? And I think part of that. I mean, for people that have children in particular, I think this is even more powerful because first. Oh, yeah. the, a large part of probably our mutual parental interactions related to 
just kind of forced programming and our own reactions against yeah. the forced programming. I, I see that as one of the one of the places I'm really headed with Gen though for Certainly. the over the while is that it's not yet, but the school systems are you know mm. collapsing all over the United States. Everybody knows that nothing useful is going on there. There are plenty of upper middle class people who've got the money to to send their kids to a place where they're going to actually learn how to think. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a, I think that's only a couple of years away, really. I think, you know, you can almost make that case now. You probably could, but it would take a lot of marketing. Well, but I, I don't think, think it it'll take I mean, that. I think the thing is that the first and second generations of these thinkers have already gone through this process. You should be able to find, um, and this seems to be in, in curious parallel, what, uh, you know, what maybe my future holds in a kind of professional sense, but you should be able to find folks that have done this at least once before. I mean, oh, particularly yeah. in Chicago, uh, New York State. Oh, well, there are areas. a lot of precedents for this. Exactly. Yeah, Edward, De, you know of Edward de Bono? Yes. You ever heard? Yeah. yeah, okay, well, he's, so, he's a prime example. But my point is that there are people that have been through this experience at least once, and I think these are the people that you can really learn from in terms of, in their own experiences, obviously, if they're out of the first circumstance, where the thing started to go wrong and how they can learn from that and build so it will not happen again in the same What, where, what will not happen again? So the examples in Chicago and New York are pretty mixed to pretty poor. In Chicago, there were a number of visionary schools set up, particularly in the inner cities, that then became, uh, well... Oh, I know. I, you know that's yeah. I've read about. Yeah, okay, I, I know what so, you mean. There, but, yeah, but, people, but, but, yeah. but, but, the people yeah. that started these schools originally are exactly the kind of people that, are, you know, have a certain amount of experience in the trenches, so to speak, yeah. but also at the same point probably share your vision on some fundamental level. So yeah. I think the ability to use what we have here, and this, this has always been my concern about your fit with the Zeitgeist movement in particular, because <laughs> you really are communicating to a very focused and, I guess, relatively, more extremely disenchanted group of people. Yeah, of course, of course. Who else, yeah, who better to recruit? <laughs> well, in some regard, but they're also, as you're finding through this secondary, or this, this group, this group in Squish, that there are people who may not find themselves in the zeitgeist move, but, but certainly have parts of the puzzle and probably oh, absolutely. Maybe, maybe these are the next group that um you, that you know would would lead to yeah. uh, the zeitgeist movement is is just a bunch of people who went to a website and signed their names certainly so I guess my view is is there a way to uh, moderately mainstreamized, and I'm thinking here just of Facebook yeah. as an example, yeah. a way of actually gathering together like minds with regards yeah. to this particular mm. vision of education. Yeah. yeah. And That's... maybe it already exists on Facebook. I mean, I haven't done so any research. So why don't you and I create a podcast for that? I think we could do that. That I might think, be yeah. real interesting. Yeah. So know? what do we call it? Oh, I don't know. Oh, wait, wait. You, uh, God, I, I never even had the idea before, and you already want me. I don't care about the name for now. Okay. So, the question is, what the hell are we going to do? And you, you, are we talking about early childhood education? Is that what we were talking I think about? We, I think we about a, as broad as possible initially. I think the first thing that we start out by saying is that we are, and this may be a little bit too um, fringy, but we are at the crumbling of Rome. 
Okay, yeah, right. That's not too fringy. That's I'm glad you're saying it because I'd rather be extreme. And <laughs> yeah. and if we if some people turn away because it scares them, fine. The ones who get past that mm. will be just the right students. I think you're right. I think you're right. But we are at the crumbling of Rome. We are really just grabbing together the last books that we can hang on to while the masses come in with the flame. Yeah, torches. Bob, I got that. Yeah, right. And the question is, what are your kids going to do about it? Exactly. Yeah, how are you preparing your child to deal with this? And do you this think is, the school system is doing a good job? This is completely, <laughs> this is the interesting thing, because traditionally this view has come from the far right, but increasingly this is a, a non-political view. Well, as uh, F.M. Esfandieri called it, he said he's an up-winger. <laughs> this is, so the interesting thing is that neither you, well, Maybe we both lend certain degrees of credibility to some of this, but we, we are missing probably at least one other person here. And the thing that interests me particularly is... Some professional educator, someone, someone who's actually... For example, yeah. like the, the, uh, the uh, woman you mentioned. Yeah, that's a possibility, actually. She'd be great. Yeah. I don't know her that well. I mean, actually, I've never had a personal conversation with her. I exchanged words directly with her, you know, there and heard her speak. Mm. And I got really good sense that, that she's someone I'd like to work with. Yeah. So I don't know what her views are on much of anything, but I can pretty much guarantee that they'd be, at least be interesting. <laughs> I, I can imagine they probably would, and certainly considerably more applied than... And she's been own. teaching 14-year-olds who carry guns to class. Uh, well, not anymore, because they have to go through the metal detectors now. Yeah. So. <laughs> so they slide their guns under the fences, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. No, I think she would be a welcome addition, and I think there's probably a direction that this thing could go. Um, there would be... That's fascinating. I think that's a great idea, actually. Now, my view is, and I won't even recount the interesting conversation I had with my wife today associated with her experiences of California education, but um, my view is that uh, this can be very generalist initially, but may, may phylumate as it goes on in terms of age groups and these kind of things. But I think the original, the first thing that we need to do is we need to do a solid surveying of the space. We need to get a sense of... No, we don't have to do that. You have to do that. <laughs> uh, I don't even want to hear about it. If you have specific questions, I'd be happy to, uh, uh, you know, okay. to help you think about delegate, any one of those things. Delegate, delegate, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, let me see what the next few weeks of my life are looking like. Listen, there's absolutely no hurry for me on this, as you know. But if you can put something, I, I love the idea. I think uh, I think it could serve me personally, yeah. and and I think it could serve the development of the planet. Yeah. You know, I mean, this could be. We could actually. I mean, really, in some sense, it, what it is is an infomercial. Mm, I don't think of it that way. Here's I mean, the interesting thing. So, okay. in terms of the groups that we have access to, you have access to Zeitgeist. I have um, a few. I mean, for example, Lorenzo Haggerty's work. He touches on maybe fifteen to twenty thousand folk, a number of whom are either in education or have left education. But I think there are a number. Mm, of, the okay. main problem there is that you kind of skew yourself already. Um, so let me think on this. Well, but you start with what you got and then see where it goes and develop it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, the first thing is you got to have something there for for people to respond to. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and a plan for how to do it. I, and I don't know exactly how to do it, but and, and yeah. I mean, you had no idea that that model railway thing was going to turn well, into it. Well, here's an interesting thing. This is something that I've been pondering recently. I've been pondering a Facebook movement associated with um, instigating the Democratic Party to find another presidential nominee at the next election. Okay. That's not something I'm interested in. Clearly in a- not. Clearly <laughs> not. But I'm putting it out there because I think that idea as an idea could be floated very rapidly and catch off on Facebook and, and address a wide variety of... Uh, towards what end? Towards an end that um, the, the problem is that the... The problem. The problem associated with this very specific circumstance is that the immense energy that went into Obama's first campaign yielded absolutely no tangible <laughs> results. Surprise, surprise. I wasn't surprised. Believe me, I wasn't surprised. But I think there is a group of folk, potentially millions of folk, that are um, considerably uh, annoyed by this circumstance. And the thing that strikes me, particularly as this country spirals in very surreal directions is that um, the next presidential campaign will be really... uh, The last presidential campaign. (laughs) Cyberpunk-esque. In its extreme, (laughs) bizarro... It should be fascinating, you know. Uh, There really isn't anybody, but... Well, how much longer do we have till we're... Blessed with this event, uh, what two more years? A year, 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 and well, eighteen months basically. Eighteen months, okay, yeah. And is there any? Is there really any possibility of anybody but Obama? The point is not that there is a possibility of anyone but Obama. It is that a disenchanted group of people organize. Oh, okay. Then why? Okay. And I think this comes from. I don't think this is a. But but why use a, against? Ah, okay. I, I think this is just about. A, you see, the thing that strikes me about politics is the sheer vast minority that are ever represented by any kind of political movement, and I think the frustration, particularly as this notion of democracy is continuously satirized. <laughs> there is still something that underlies that, and that is just a vastly disenchanted population that has no meaningful connection. And the thing, yes, and they've put up with it, and most of them are disenchanted, and they haven't got a clue. They're not even home. They're just a bunch of fucking language monkeys. I think actually, uh, you see, this is, or they wouldn't be putting up with it. You know, it would never would have got this way. <laughs> I mean, how can they tolerate this shit and tell me they're conscious? That's just bullshit. This is my point. My point is that I like throwing out these... Look, it, it still surprises me. And I I am... You know, I, I feel like a, a mini Malcolm X on some, <laughs> some days with regards to the, um, the Fred Hampton group that I set up on Facebook. I mean, if I wanted to find young African-American radicals, I couldn't have found a better way of distilling that group of people other than putting up this obscure link between uh, Fred Hampton and uh, whatever the other fellow's name was, the, the congressman in Chicago, uh, Bobby, Bobby Rush. It's because, and I think 
this is the thing that interests me. Now, Facebook has changed some of its API associated with this in terms of like the, the developer methods. But I think there is some way to drum up grass. I mean, what we've seen in Egypt and these kind of places, maybe less so Libya, but in Egypt in particular, is that there is a vast disenchanted group of people who you would have thought previously were just straight up language monkeys that can assemble in a physical form. And we don't have physical form meetings in this country anymore. We have virtual form meetings. And the way that you get those things together is through things like Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. So I think and, and this and Skype and and, and, and yeah. these kinds of things, yeah. But I think the sense of uh, not necessarily by not even partisan disappointment or disenchantment or just general disgust, but this notion that the politicians are getting have always been bad, but seem to be outdoing themselves yeah. to get even more. In Listen, a you know, I got to tell you, I just have got absolutely no patience for that whole system. Exactly. I don't give a shit whether it goes down. I, I'm really not interested in that whole political system. I don't, I don't expect it to change because I really think the problem is with the population of the United States, Doesn't not the government. Doesn't that include you? Of course, we're all by, here together. No, no, but by your disenchantment and your general disgust and... No, it's just I don't think there's any solutions coming from there. It's not... That's my disgust with it is, is only that uh, I don't see fixing that is really going to solve the problem. Mm. The problem is m much more fundamental than that, and I would rather... Like I say, my problem... I think the problem is you got a planet full of people who believe everything they hear their language machine say. Mm. And I don't care what their language machine is saying to them. Uh, you know, if they believe it, we're all in trouble. But as they're increasingly disempowered by political systems and these kind of things, there, there could be a mass enlightenment. Oh, well, I expect enlightenment, it. The mass enlightenment then needs to have tools of reaction to... So, okay, imagine the, the Heronstone uh, utopia and say, let's say 50% or 60% of the U.S. population wakes up tomorrow morning. No, that's not, that's not the Heronstone utopia. Okay. It's, it's more than that. It's 100%. Okay, let's say the partial Heronstone utopia, the, the Heronstones... Okay, let's say one step towards a reasonable planet when 50% of the people... <laughs> see, I don't think it's... See, I think it's going to go exponentially. So I think by the time 50%... I mean, that'll be so staggering. I mean, really, you have to talk about when it reaches 5 or 10%, because that's going to be where the curve in the elbow is, you know, on the exponential thing. So the point we're we're I, not there. The point that I made through when the flowers died was this idea that irrespective of the sheer numbers, the methods of control that are used are established, and they are very militaristic methods of control, will ultimately still repress the vast majority Unless the vast majority has tools in order to disassemble the no, minority no, that has the control. The, the point is, the people, those people with the guns that are going to be enforcing it, they they have to be involved too. It has to be enough people in enough places where we decide not to do that. It doesn't mean it's what their job is. They'll just say, "Fuck you, we're not going to do that." Okay, so. But that's what I'm saying. This is this really depends on a change of consciousness. If any scenario that I can see that's going to require force and arms is going to be a failure. I mean, there that there may be that may it may come to that. It's, 
the old the butterfly people may make it come to that. But uh, well, the caterpillar people will make it come to that without question. Well, maybe not. You never can tell. I try to be optimistic. But uh, the likelihood is when they really get that their civilization is over, <laughs> they're going to get real nasty. That is my view. I mean, that's yeah. the point that I'm making. So, well, so we've got to be – so we have to take that into consideration and be clever and figure out how we're going to get, get around that if that starts to happen. That's exactly I mean, it may not. That's exactly okay, my yeah. point. So All right. the, the way – well, my view is that there needs to be very well cognizant tools, perhaps implemented over a, a... You see, time is an ally to one side of this equation, but may not necessarily be an ally to the enlightened side of the equation, unless the enlightened side of the equation starts thinking in very long term... Well, well, actually, for the purposes of this conversation, I'd rather not talk in terms of enlightened group and non-enlightened group well, but in terms of the term language monkey don't you yeah yeah but i mean for what we're talking about here at this level at a kind of planetary level i think it makes more sense to talk about caterpillar people and butterfly people okay. Okay. you know that those people who are really committed to the old way of things being mm-hmm. you know and and can't ima- that can see nothing but decay and destruction mm. And people who are committed to creating a new world. And for the benefit of the FBI listening in, we are talking about organized re- revolution here, people. So, yes, no, I agree in time. <laughs> That's H. And, and I, was, I was just going to say, and Tom definitely speaks for himself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, yeah, my, I mean, my, the view that I've held from when I was about 17 when I wrote. Uh, uh, when the flowers died, was this idea that the only way to get to the, uh, well, the point even where the butterfly people and caterpillar people were having some form of negotiation associated with the future, required a degree of scholarship and history. You have to appreciate in this country there are a wide variety of quite strange historical narratives that have been constructed, which only <laughs> exist here and have come through generations of exactly this kind of planning and scholarship. Um, And unless there are very well-defined and well-described answers, or not even answers, but um, kind of counter-histories, or at least counter-understandings, then really there will just be a single pervasive view. so, well, that's pretty pretty much been what it's been for the last, oh, 40,000 years. So that's what that's precisely what we are now outgrowing. Is that that belief that there's only one story, that this history is is the history as opposed to just a history. So my views with regards to militarism in particular, I I'm constantly playing the militarism thought experiment because I think militarism will will probably be one of the things that needs to be overcome in a kind of general narrative relatively quickly. And unfortunately, in the past 10 years at least, the popular militarism narrative has gone really quite surreally extreme in this country. And to a lesser extent in various other countries, but in this country in particular. I was watching... Are you familiar with the film Boys in the Hood? Um... 
I'm not quite sure. I don't know if I, I mean I know it's about a film it. From the uh, yeah, early yeah. Uh, no, I remember it. I remember it. I, I probably have seen it. There's a very strong anti-military line involving two African American teenagers walking down a street where one says to the other one, "They just want to control you. As soon as you get in there, you don't own yourself. Don't be stupid. Don't join the military." You could never put that out in current day America. Something has really fundamentally changed in this country associated with these kind of discussions. And I think unless it's independent, you know, talkers, what have you, whatever we are on some sense, unless we have a really strong counter narrative associated with that, we will end up with a society which is unable to make the very basic changes that are necessary to move yeah. towards now. That's the caterpillar people. Yes. yes. And if, if they, they, they are headed to a, a bad end. Well, I think we might be headed to a bad end as well. Well, they, we, <laughs> they may, yeah, their, their bad end could become our bad end. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and like I say, that this, this is all very important uh, to, to get a handle on how I don't think we have to, to deal with it. Well, no, I guess it's just how dear that issue is to your heart, because we do need to be dealing with it, but not just philosophizing about it. We need people who actually can plan. Exactly. That's my point. <laughs> That's my point. Yeah. But the philosophizing, unfortunately, is, is some component of the planning, because ultimately, sure. you know, ultimately philosophy plays a very strong role. Well, the issue it. about arms, about, you know, are you going to defend yourself or are you going to be a pacifist? Yeah. You know, that's a serious issue. Yeah. And then if you choose to defend yourself, it's only a very small step to, you know, preemptive strikes if, the, if, if it looks bad. Mm. And frankly, if I was going to go that route, I wouldn't want to do it with AK-47s. I'd want fucking surface-to-surface -surface missiles. Mm. Because if you're going to play that game, if you're going to play, you know, shooting game, there's no point in playing that unless you're going to win. Certainly. That's a shitty game to lose. Yes. <laughs> so, I, and so the question is whether you even want to play that game at all. And I, and I don't know. That's a that's a tough one because how important is the butterfly? <laughs> well, the the interesting thing about hypermilitarism and Katrina was a good example of that. And I don't think we've seen the last of natural disasters. Uh, is that um, the more militarism that there is? in terms of the ability to deal with even the most basic problems, the more likelihood of, uh, well, accidental execution, accidental death, or a wide variety of other factors, and the inability for the social society to actually deal with those circumstances. Well, that's not always true. I mean, uh, in fact, well, I don't know about in fact, but I've got a fairly good friend now who lives in Egypt and has been walking me through at least his perceptions of what's going on there. Yes. And uh, he, you know, he's not, he certainly isn't a lover of the military, but he thinks basically they have saved, I mean, if, if, if there wasn't any order at all, and, that he, and he agrees it has been harsh a couple of times, uh, that the whole thing would descend into chaos. And that uh, the military is, he thinks, he hopes, <laughs> fairly well, you know, uh, grounded in, in something good somewhere. And um, apparently a lot of people are, are feeling okay with that, you know, that uh, the military has actually been a stabilizing force during this thing, and it could have been really bad. 
So versus, for example, the conditions in Libya. I mean, I, or, I don't think yeah. there's any QED from that because ultimately, the experiences in Egypt seems to be that the military hedged their bets, and some of them decided to defect at the right times, but yeah. ultimately... Well, and according to my friend, he said basically that uh, once this thing came out, there, there really was a groundswell. I mean, really, everybody just decided, and it was just overwhelming, you know, and it infected the, a lot of the military, too. They, they wanted it, they really wanted him to go. Have you, have you... I mean, I'm not sure if you've had any experience talking to people that have come relatively recently from communist countries like, you know, re... I don't know, but people that have... Cuba's a bad example. Yeah. People that have come well, what do you mean by recently? Country. I have a good friend who uh, came here from communist China. Okay. So there, there are elements of if you've not known certain concepts for a long period of time, then being exposed to certain things. For example, I mean, I dated a, a Taiwanese Malaysian for a year in my early 20s. And she provided a quite contrasting narrative associated to a wide variety of things that I just associated as almost givens um, in terms of just, well, notions of control fundamentally. I thought it was Singaporeans as well. If you ever meet a Singaporean and have a detailed conversation with them. My view is that when people are so heavily immersed in certain kinds of environments, and you ultimately see this in, for example, the, the fall of, well, the Ceausescus, for example, in Romania and these kind of things, you see a population that is so has been so heavily repressed and so heavily kind of talked to uh, in such a you know yeah. strange and perverse level that their ability actually to decompress the circumstances, particularly mm. when they're in the environment. My feeling with regards to any kind of military is predominantly that they represent elements of the state that has been very good at kind of playing cards in particular directions. And my real concern with regards to the, well, what is going on in, you know, parts of Africa, what is going on in uh, in North Africa and, uh, you know, the Middle East currently seems to be indicative of a new group of bully boys moving in and not yeah. really of any kind of social or productive change. I guess... I've heard your friend, unfortunately, unfortunately you haven't put all the audio out associated with your friend in Egypt, so I've only heard smatterings of it and not enough. Yeah. I'd like to hear a lot more if he's sympathetic to the recordings being put out even. Oh, yeah, he knows. Student. So, but I haven't heard enough of his stuff. Um, but I guess my sense is that I, any organized group, a heavily organized group that has at some point been sanctioned by the state and used for vast social repression, it may have a certain view of euphoria. It's like when you stop being beaten, basically. You're like, ah, oh, I've stopped. Well, being but also beaten. you got to realize that those organizations are made up of human beings who do, in fact, have minds and uh, ideas. But and, their, and, the and, nature of their organization is that they need to repress these. No, I understand. I understand that. But I was in the military. I understand. I had many artist <laughs> friends that were in the military as well, and yeah. I talked to them at great lengths about their experiences in the military. I don't think the military is... Uh, however, their ability um, n- not to shoot and kill people in certain circumstances was something that they had no control over. They had to do the things in the certain circumstances that they were in that they had to do. And after the fact, and what they do in certain other circumstances goes against that, but my view is that if you're put in a position where you have to kill other human beings and you're being told to kill other human beings, you're in a completely different state than a book group. 
and I think the notion of the military yeah. as something which could be, you know, described in relatively simple terms is is not, uh, you know, not particularly productive in this kind of discussion. The military in Egypt, although a large part weren't connected with the social repressions, a good number of them were, and I would like to see these groups disbanded and potentially, you know, put together in a civilian form, and then the good people from that can percolate. My concern is that you still have a military uh, leadership slash dictatorship circumstance in Egypt, which ultimately could turn very bad very quickly. The euphoria that your friend is feeling may be related to the previous circumstances, but a wide variety of human rights organisations still aren't giving a glowing report associated with the Egyptian military. And I think that, unfortunately, is probably the case over anecdotal evidence at this stage. Well, we shall see what it is. You're absolutely right. But my hope for the people of Egypt is that they can get uh, mundane uh, and, uh, you know... Yeah, get back to work, you know, yeah. And, you know, deal with what they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, My concern, however, is unfortunately that uh, they may be dealt a series of really bad cards once more. And certainly, if folks from Egypt are listening to this, I'd like to say that the the free thinkers, at least, of the world wish them all the best. <laughs> because, you know, it's a, yeah. a crapshoot, and unfortunately, um, you know, you don't get... Well, the game, yeah, we are early in the game, and, uh, and probably we're going to get whacked about a bit in the early rounds. I'm expecting <laughs> yeah. and potential crashes very soon. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's just part of it. You know, that's the game you're playing. Hmm. Does your Egyptian friend listen to our discussions? I have no idea. Hmm. It was something that struck me on a talk show after the fall of the Tunisian dictator that um, while recording model rail radio, actually, a Tunisian fellow tuned in for the first time. And I think we have a lot to learn from people from, you know, from newly or apparently newly liberated parts of the world. Uh, where, where was he from? Tunisia. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think these these kind of discussions are fascinating. Well, just the fact just the fact that we can be having discussions with people from there, I think is that's that's the revolution right there. Yeah. That I've got friends who are living through that thing who talk about it and explain their views of things. Uh, God, that's just a miracle. That's just amazing. Yes. I have another topic that I want to raise with you, which is um, completely eclectic and in a completely different direction. Oh, my favorite thing. (laughs) Another direction. Another direction. (laughs) And now for something completely different. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's been put to me recently that I have a, um, and I've, I've mentioned this already, a particularly, I don't know, just... I know, general view associated with matters of life and death, and that my uh, my particular perspective on uh, on dying and all these kind of things is um, something which is I don't know culturally not necessarily unacceptable, but certainly distinct from uh, traditional American culture associated with these things. Uh-huh. Maybe considerably more practical. I don't know, but we we have well, no soylent green. You're are you an aficionado? Soylent of- green. That sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. But um, we have a particularly old cat. And my view, looking at him... They make a him, good stew, I hear. Yeah, my view, look, uh, I wouldn't make it, he's, he's skin and bones. Um, uh, maybe a soup. Um, okay. But my view, looking at him, is he's 
He's led a good life. His time has come. And well, is he in pain? Is he? Is, does he just lay there and pant and can't do anything, no, or what? He's he's very very thin. He's um, every time we take him to the vet, it just becomes more and more expensive. Um, <laughs> the truth comes out. Now we get it. Well, yeah, snuff it, man. It ain't worth it. It's too much money. Fuck him. Kill him. Make a soup out of him. Yeah, at least he's, I, I would have, he's, he's unfortunately he's gone past his usefulness for gloves. He's lost too much fur. Uh, okay. So yeah. yeah. Am I? Also, well, a soup is it? And probably you know probably just maybe uh, it'll fertilize the plants in the backyard. Well, you see, this is the funny thing because I originally had this view that pets were you know important on some level, and for the past five years, my life has been drumming into my head that cats are disposable creatures. And then when we have cats, they will, you know, die of natural causes and it will be okay. And now Just I'm don't flush him down the toilet, Well, though. you see, I was going to put him out with the trash, and then she got very upset about that. And then I realized that basically... <laughs> well, you got to kill it first. Shit, you got to kill it first before you put it in the trash. line this whole time associated with how cats were disposable, and she actually wants to pump this thing full of steroids and make him like a Terminator creature or something. I don't know. <laughs> So I don't know how to actually bridge this because, um, quite frankly, I don't know. He's not. The main thing is he's our most annoying cat. You don't even like the thing, yeah. yeah. So, it's well, so, so, but so the issue. I mean, this is yeah, this is an interesting issue. This is good. See, but if if it was annoying, yeah. How many cats do you have? We have five of the creatures. Five. Yeah. And they—they all—they're your wife's or they're yours? They're both of yours? Well, or this is the interesting thing of them. Is she the cat person three or of what? Them she has brought home with her from her parents' property. So mm-hmm. he is the. We found one cat in one apartment complex. Another cat in another apartment complex. The first one, a kitten that would fit in my hand, three weeks old. So yeah. I brought that one home. So that one was my fault. Uh, the next one basically was a kitten that we found in it. So, Why did you bring it home? Um, it was a very strange time in my life. When I first moved to this country in 2005, I had been very resistive to move here. Really very resistive. I'd fought my wife for about a year and a half about coming back here. Because, uh, firstly, I didn't think I could find work in the U.S. economy, which turned out pretty well to be the case. I felt that the U.S. had really done a series of things which had basically made it pretty clear that they didn't want the U.S. as a whole, really didn't have much interest in me being here. And um, I actually really like living in the U.K. Anyway, so we came back here and um, I got a job relatively quickly in L.A., but as I've previously told you, my wife didn't like the bagginess of the pants of the kids on the corner and various other things, so she said, no, we'll move to Las Vegas. So I came here and then proceeded to work for companies in L.A. and in the Bay Area uh, for about a year. But it was a very strange time because I was basically working out of the house while my wife was... I can't remember. She had she had probably one or two jobs over that period of time. And it was getting to the point where I thought our marriage was getting fractured in some strange sense. That, you know, we were just moving in different directions and this whole move had just been a huge mistake. And... In doing this, I was walking the dog one day and came across this tiny little kitten. It was about September, and the middle of, well, it's still really hot here. And this thing was um, basically gasping for air. And the dog all by itself. Oh, I mean, it was nothing, nothing it was around. No, no. The, the 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 
it um it had a uh, an adopted mother that basically had taken off with all the fit kittens and left this one to die basically. Oh, okay. Uh, so I picked this poor little creature up, uh, wrapped it up in my shirt, brought it home, w- went out, got some of the like nursing milk, pumped it full of milk, it threw up the milk with grass, and then went to sleep. And I thought, oh no, this is the end of this. You know, this cat's not going to come back. Woke up, hissed at me, and wanted more milk. Uh, <laughs> Great. Anyway, so is that cat me. still with you? Yeah, oh yeah, no, no, she's our oldest, and she's. That's the one that you're going to kill? No, 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 no. She's our <laughs> oldest of, of ownership. She's not the one we're going to kill. No, she's oh, okay. still got a lot of life left in her. Oh, okay. So anyway, my wife came home. I produced this shoebox, which had this little hissing creature inside. She looked nothing like a cat. And my wife said, what's that? And I said, it's a kitten. And then basically the kitten was the thing that kind of refocused things. And, you know, we, we both spent yeah. time with the kitten. Even though I was in the house one time, my wife was in the house the other, the kitten yeah, basically was the kitten was there, was the there. Yeah. yeah. So um, Luna, as my wife named her, uh, is very much a, a strange creature. I mean, she was grossly underweight. Uh, we had to do a wide variety of things to keep her alive, including bathing her initially because she was completely... In- Fested with a variety of insects and other things. Um, and anyway, so when we got to our next apartment complex, uh, we were walking in one evening from getting from our respective jobs, and there was this little ginger and white kitten looking very lost, kind of mewing at the front door. We let him kind of live around the front door for about six hours, and then we brought him inside, fed him, and he stayed. And he's now our, our large alpha male uh, Bertie. The problem was that basically they got to a stage where they were both adult cats and my wife's parents had this large street cat which had been attacked by coyotes early on and had the sides, his sides ripped and basically was resuscitated and they had put um, $1,200 into his restoration. Anyway, we got, this is the cat we're discussing now, the, the cat wow. that's ultimately on his last legs. And he's led quite a life. He has led quite a <laughs> and he's had a lot of children, and he's just basically had It's really, time, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, he's had a fine yeah, life, and now it's over. Exactly. So that's my view with regards to that. Um, and really, I think the quality of his life from now on is just going to be pretty non-existent. But, well, I guess that's your choice, isn't it? This is not my wife's view. This is not my <laughs> wife's view. My wife's view... Uh, and this, it's interesting because when her grandmother uh, was killed by the train, I realised that I had to be... I had to do everything in my power to stay alive longer than her. <laughs> because the... Well, it was, a, it was an instantaneous thing, really. She got over... She didn't get over it, but she got over the immense sorrow part of it relatively quickly, within about three yeah. or four days. Yeah. Um, but the initial representation of that sorrow was so um, emotional, so raw, uh, that I realised that... Um, and I'm worried about her mother in particular, because I think when her mother passes away, it's going to be, you know, probably six months plus yeah. worth of this kind of... I see, I th- I'm of the opinion that that is choice. That isn't, that that's basically playing a game. I just don't believe in that. You know, people respond, they can respond any way they want to, you know? And if their response is to burden everybody around them Should by look, their let's emotionalism... Be let's, be, let's be clear here. Um, my wife didn't 
it wasn't a burdenous thing. In fact, she left very quickly to go to California. It was, um, it wasn't a burdenous thing with regards to her grandmother. It was just a raw expression of the emotion. Yeah, but what impact did that have on you or the people in her life? Uh, well, everyone kind of was going on with their own thing in parallel. I mean, it wasn't so much as a burden, just as a voice. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, well, that's good. All right, but then I misjudged it. I, I've seen people like that, and it just fucks up everybody, you know, all, yeah. you know, and everybody's into their drama. Yeah. And it's really destructive. Yeah, I think the, the fact was that me being here was actually, um, some kind of positive grounding. And certainly when I went there and the things that I did associated with the the body, the funeral, the train company, all these kind of things, gave a similar sense of comfort to the family. Now, yeah. me not being in the circumstance or me being the subject of this kind of emotion, I don't think would be particularly productive. And uh, I don't know. It's a strange... Wait a minute. Say that again. I guess I think I missed that. Say that again. My point was that if I'm the dead one, then I'm not going to be there to do the reassuring, basically. Oh, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> that was what I said. Great insight. <laughs> I, 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 I could, you know, the A1 stuff to you, Harris. It's, it's all pure, you know? Um, so... Well, but you can leave instructions. Do you see, this is the interesting <laughs> thing. Again, this is something that I have done already. Oh, cool, cool. You got it all worked. Are you going to have a party? I had originally planned, because I've known people that have done this to much aplomb, to actually record something. And um, I was hearing about a fellow in the UK who was like a model rail fanatic, and he played... <laughs> he play, Are you familiar with Thomas the Tank Engine? No. Okay, so it's a, child, a British children's television series that was originally, at some stage, narrated by Ringo Starr, of all people. And, uh, <laughs> if that isn't a good voice for a model train, I don't know, you know. Anyway, so um, maybe part of his rehab conditions or something. But uh, anyway, um, it's, a, it's just a, like a children's train thing. But it has a very distinctive theme, and the fellow had some very somber music playing that then turned into the Thomas the Tank Engine theme. It's called Thomas the Train here because kids don't know what a tank engine is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, my view is that, um, yeah, the funerals that I've been to that have been joyous have typically been strongly influenced by those that have uh, passed away. Uh, and I certainly would like to kind of convey that. But then again, I've been to some funerals recently that have been rather substantial and quite frankly I don't think I'll draw the crowd so think, um, but no I think um, certainly with regards to just making sure that things are in order this is the one thing that my mother has said about her father's passing is that everything he passed away relatively rapidly but he was 90, uh, 89 so he had probably a good 10 years to get his stuff in order and did it pretty well actually yeah, uh, and I think basically that's all you can do um, in the circumstances. Uh, but <laughs> well, no, it may not be all you can do. It's all you're going to do. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think there is a right way or the. You know, you have that, that. You know, I think that idea is debilitating. It, it's really about what kind of a life do you want to live and how do you want to go out. Yeah, and it's your choice, and that's that's it. There's no justification for that. Well, it's, a, it's an artistic choice, actually. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
I, I don't think I was claiming anything more than artistic choice. But, um, anyway. Oh, okay. Well, no, I, I got the impression that you were s- s- somehow in a quandary about that, and it just struck me. I don't know. Maybe no, I missed it. There was no quandary there. There was no quandary okay. there. But anyway, so returning to this idea of the cat. Um, so there's, there's more that can be narrated here, but um, as I've said, I think there'll be some posthumous discussion when circumstances change, so to speak. So, How will you kill it? Uh, this is this is very interesting here. So you're familiar with the anthrax circumstance? Well, yeah, I'm, I, the the anthrax letters, and they basically yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah. So well, there are plenty of poisons. I mean, so you're thinking about poisoning it or no, what? I'm not thinking about poisoning it. I think there are things basically that um, that can slow down body function. But honestly, I think really the cat is going to pass away. I don't think it really needs any meaningful assistance. My feeling is a big chicken meal would probably be enough, or turkey even better. Um, and he's got no... <laughs> Go on. You know? So, uh, no, I'm, I'm not... Uh, but uh, having said that, I mean, probably we'll just go to the vet. Um, yeah, that, that's... A... That tends to be the most traumatic experience for my wife, because my wife lost a dog of... 18 years. Well, then she should probably stay home, and you being the brave man you are, you take care of it. Then, but then, you know, then there will have been... You see, it's this notion of hope, you see. You see, if she doesn't come with me, then there's still the hope that the vet said to me, well, we could go with the $2,000 medicine, or we could just put the cat down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, but as soon as you get home without the cat, she'll know. (laughs) That I didn't pick the $2,000 medicine. Yeah, no, I think... um, I guess my relationship with this cat is very much associated with the fact that he really is... Couldn't you just wait for... I mean, it sounds like it's on its last legs anyway. Is it? Is it causing any problems? Well, the main thing about it is, and we had a cat in Australia like this, he's reverted to extreme kittendom, followed by a straight... He's got, a, like, a strong feral element in him. Yeah. So, um, uh, as I know you're a fan of El Pollo Loco, he goes absolutely crazy at the smell of El Pollo Loco and will attack us for it. <laughs> to the point where we can't even carry it in the house. So he's, he's on the verge of being... Well, so if you were to kill it while it was attacking you, it would be self-defense. And it would be fast, too. Yeah, my wife wouldn't see it. You could way. strangle it. Yeah. You know? No, he, he put it out of fight, believe me. You obviously never fought a feral cat previously. Uh, uh, no, no, you're right. That would, you know, you, yeah, if you can't dominate it, you'd be ripped to shreds. No, exactly. No, I. <laughs> yeah, even doing things like sweeping around a feral cat can sometimes provide uh, interesting, uh, interesting claw wounds. I guess my sense with regards to it is that we do have at least a couple of cats. Well, the two cats that I've noted, we also have a Persian. It's currently rocking the chair in the background. That are actually really nice social cats. And this one cat is just a big feral cat that had a lot of kittens that has come to kind of dominate aspects of our household. Yeah, and, and it's time for it to go. And it's old and it's... Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not the alpha male it once was. Um, and I think, you know, the large turkey meal, these kind of things are, are probably... Uh, you know, quite comfortable ways for an animal to, uh, you know. You're, you're serious that, in fact, you think he's so bad that an overdose on turkey would kill it? I think the thing that I found, particularly having seen uh, animals put down, is that there, there is oftentimes a very thin clinging to life. 
that just kind of continues through a vast physical degradation. And I hate to say this, this was also the circumstance with my grandfather as well. That basically, and this is, again, goes back to these notions of simulation, because I talk about it very much in kind of simulation sense, but really the life support can be very, very fragile towards the end. And I think um, certainly, you know, this cat is moving in that direction, basically. I think if we took it to a vet, it would be put down, basically. And I've said that to my wife. She still wants me to take it to the vet this weekend. Uh, but I think the rest will write itself, basically. It's either, you know, at a turkey meal or in a sterilised vet's office with, with some nurse coming in and trying to take my credit card halfway through the process, which is the way these things tend to happen. <laughs> so, I don't know. But, uh, no, my wife is opting for a vet, so the vet it will probably be. Well, and that would, yeah, that may be the best you can do. You know? My sense is by the time I am in... I'm my, glad I don't have to make that choice. <laughs> by the time I am in my 70s or 80s, particularly if I don't have children, but maybe even if I do have children, there will be legal euthanasia. I suspect that... Uh, well, it doesn't even make any difference. You can get it done now sure. easily. It will, yeah. be, it will be... Sure. It will be, It'll not be an issue. Exactly. No, I fully expect... I expect, in fact, I hope, <laughs> I think, that I die a suicide. Yeah. I want to plan my death. Yeah. If I get to the point where it's really clear that this is, ain't going to get any better, yeah. then um, I'll check out. That's fine. Yeah. Well, to only push this in a more morbid direction, <laughs> I, I would say that if I got into that circumstance, I certainly I may consider various sedatives. I certainly wouldn't consider firearms. Oh no, no, that's um, that's that's rude. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, drugs are the way to do it. Of course. <laughs> okay, okay. You yeah, made yeah. reference to firearms previously, but I wasn't sure if you were serious. Uh, no, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Okay, okay. There was a previous recording a long time back where you were talking to someone else where you made reference to firearms in these circumstances. Oh, no, well, I don't know, but no, I, I think that's really rude to leave okay. your brains all over somebody's wall. Very good. You know, good. That's, that's just fucked up. Yeah, and certainly um, the yeah the, 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 as a student of history. God, this is such a bleak podcast here. Now we no, it's not. This is important exactly. stuff. As a student, every, of history. this is on every person's everyone who's listening to this has thought all of this stuff. Very true. Very true. They um, just probably have pretended that they didn't. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think the Second World War teaches us, as the Germans well noted. That, yeah, death by firearms very frequently doesn't actually equal death as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you, if you're semi-smart, you could do it, but it's just a shitty thing to do unless you're doing it out in the woods and you don't expect anybody to find you and the bears are going to eat you. Then I think that's perfectly okay. It's probably a very good way, actually, yeah. because it's very fast. <laughs> you know, boom, it's done, and uh, the bears will come and clean up the mess. Hmm. Or oh, sitting on the edge of a boat or a wide variety of other circumstances. Well, and then the fish will clean up the mess. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways. So I, I wouldn't like that, though. I want to just sort of go to sleep <laughs> and, yeah. and fade off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's gri- I don't like that grizzly shit. That's yeah, that doesn't sound like fun at all. Yeah, but um, no, it's. Uh, I think the notion of uh, I don't know temporality or something like that. The just the sense that we don't that our permanency is the one thing that we can actually rely on will not actually be the case. 
um, is something that I feel a great degree of calm associated with. Yeah. And I find it quite strange that others don't... I guess... The, That's because they're all crazy. Yeah, the experiences that people have vary greatly. No, they're just nuts. That's it. They're nuts. They're language monkeys. But the they conclusion bought- that I came to from this is not to cut off the always... Uh, <laughs> always monkeys. unique analysis. <laughs> <laughs> so, <the> language monkeys. <laughs> but um, the conclusion that I came to was the only thing I could do was produce. I mean, basically, the only thing I could do was produce stuff like podcasts and other things. And I think that is really the solution to all of this is just to create. Because that exists independently of ourselves. Well, see, I don't even know what the word self means. I haven't got a clue. That's the big mystery to me. Mm. What the hell does the word I actually mean? What does it refer well, to? Irrespective of whether or not it has meaning. Well, well, but then you're just playing a word game. If, if that has but no meaning. Word game. That's well, your no, but, point. Your whole point is that in the exploration of self, it, it, it appears for even, you know, even a detailed analysis, let alone the precursory analysis, to be relatively meaningless in the context of anything that you would want to attribute meaning to. Huh? <laughs> what you're basically saying is that the... the um, what, 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 would, what would the right word be? I'm trying to think of the... It's not even a paradox. Um, I don't know. The ethereal nature of self means that the discussion associated with self is probably better discussing... No, that's not what I mean. I, I, I'm, not, I'm saying there isn't a self to have an ethereal nature. The that's whole concept of self... The ethereal, isn't that what the ethereal part of that means? Well, then, then that's self-contradictory. To talk about a self that is ethereal is to say... Is, <laughs> it's like I say, it's a fiction of language. That's, that's there is, there is no thing. such thing yeah. as a self. Yeah. Although you can use the word sometimes, uh, if, you, if you're careful to define it in some limited sense, then it can be a useful term. But it's a tough one. Mm. And I think that there's a sort of general acceptance by most humans on this planet that they actually know what that means, wh- who they are and what, they are and what they are. And they just, again, this gets back to the story stuff, is that Certainly. they've got a narrative, and to them that narrative is reality. It's not just a narrative. It's reality. They are totally under the spell of that story in, in this sort of high-level abstract domain of language. Testify. Do you have any other topics you want to discuss, Aaron? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I'm fascinated uh, about your insights into the nature of my interactions with the people as you've been listening to them. It's becoming increasingly frustrating, I think, because my my kind of uh, th- there's an element. Well, there's more one-on-ones lately. Yes, I'm, yeah. I, I'm getting back to that, yeah. and I, and I, I took that to heart. You're absolutely right. There's a a whole. I mean, those are two entirely different realities. When I'm when I'm there with a bunch of open mics, uh, it's the Heron Stone show. Yeah. <laughs> And that Heronstone irritates me, I've got to be perfectly clear. Yeah, yeah, well, it sort of irritates me too. forces a direction of discussion and thought which well, almost goes what... against the solo or the one-on-one Heronstone, which yeah, is the yeah. that I Well, have. but again, I'm really sort of there as a teacher, and I'm, and I'm pushing a philosophy. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what's going on there. But there's also I say, an and I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. Well. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of bullshit, yeah, that yeah. whole model. Yeah. I'm, I'm not happy with it, but... You know, it's the best I've been able to come up with so far. 
The thing that interests me. If you've got any suggestions, I'd be glad to hear them. There's an acceleration that can go on. I think the your ability to immediately understand that if someone has had some prior experience with Est, for example, they're already going to know some of what you are talking about. Maybe give them a kind of precursory refresher, but then move them into some slightly more intermediate or advanced topics associated with, firstly. Actually, that all that doesn't follow. It it means that we've shared a similar experience. What they've done with it is, uh, you know, I don't assume that they've that they and I have anything to go on. It's just one data point, mm. and but and it's an important one. Though. Exactly. That's yeah, I'm yeah. It's not bad. To, I mean, those all those things go into the model. So the point about <laughs> it is that they've had a certain series of uh, thought experiments, for want of a better term, which has led them to a position which is at least is, I don't want to use the term closer, but at least has wandered them down a path that you normally have to kind of narrate as you walk down with other yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, they've sort of played in the exactly. same sandbox. Exactly. <laughs> so I think yeah. my view is that the, um, the movement into more intermediate discussions would make a lot of what you do considerably more interesting, particularly if you think of your listener as this kind of po- series of possibilities. I think, uh, for example, about Benjamin Walker. And he's an interesting fellow because he contacted me recently for some work, um, of all things. Uh, I needed some transcription work. He contacted me as well as another fellow who was a student in the UK. I gave them both transcription-related tasks. I haven't heard from either of them since. This was about two weeks ago. Uh, and I think the... There are people out there that are listening to your general discussions that are probably at a higher level than your the people that you are talking with in terms of just having had gone through these thoughts. There, there's all sorts of people exactly. on all sorts so of levels out I there. Would consider yeah. putting out, uh, or even we don't we don't. I mean, for folks listening, we do not plan to record these things. I, I would like to do these more frequently. Uh, I just haven't been able to recently. What we do is... Kind of, we do it when we feel like it. We have an informal <laughs> yeah. get-together. But I think you could cultivate that with a number of the other folk that you've spoken to at least twice, where not necessarily that there was a regularity, but at least that there was an agreement to... Well, that, well listen, that... Aspiring. Yeah, well, that, I think, is developing, actually. Okay. Uh, a couple of times... Well, this happens all the time. There are, there are people that come in here, and we have particularly good conversations. Usually, we have two or three particularly good conversations, and then I never hear from them again, yes. <laughs> which is just fine. I figure they got what they needed, and they're off, and that's just perfect. But lately, a few people have actually been hanging around. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm not quite sure where that leads or what, but I, my sense is the trend in that. The downloads continue to be good. Mm-hmm. Somebody is out there listening. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just don't really worry about it. You know, I just, I'm just going to continue to put them out. But you're right. There's a huge difference be- between, those, between the one-on-ones and it's this different universe. Certainly. But I guess if you can kind of work through the idea of someone who's, either at a transitional or an intermediate stage in the, um, I don't know, gendo experience. Or well, I need to develop a curriculum exactly. is what I need to That's do. exactly my point. That yeah. You need to start yeah. thinking in these terms. Oh, I already ha- I've, I've been taking lots of notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, beca- it's crystallizing. It's not quite there. But, uh, yeah, all that's 
that's the next step is I, there are people who do want to take this to the next step and there has to be a curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about the idea of a curriculum is that it may actually take a few, when you use the term guinea pigs or canaries here, but it may actually take a few of these interactions for you to distill what the curriculum actually Oh, yeah. I, I, well, that's the way I've always proceeded. I just sort of go ahead with stuff and then in the process. In fact, as a project with the first group, it'll probably be to improve uh, the curriculum. Hmm. No, exactly. That's what it has to be. Um, yeah. So in fact, that'll be a standard part of the curriculum is how to improve the curriculum. It's yes. a good point, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think... Um, it's interesting because I find your conversations with women are also distinctly different to your conversations with men. <laughs> and I think that is something that I actually, particularly because you're, the women that you communicate with tend to be a lot less depressive than the men that you communicate with in general. Yeah, that's it's true. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, it's interesting. It I hadn't noticed that. The that's women good. tend to firstly... Um, I'm not sure whether they have a little less respect for you, um, but they certainly are more interested in, in play discussion elements. And also, there's, there's an interesting dynamic. I mean, again, the problem here is... <laughs> this is I great. Think, no, I this think is the, gr- I Thank think, you, man. <laughs> I think the Zeitgeist movement probably has two solid gender-defined archetypes that aren't in any way overlapping. But the men that come there typically, as you have noted, are almost kind of disenchanted loners, irrespective of whether they have families or not. I think that's secondary to their, you know, general views. But I mean, typically they are single. I'd say I would, yeah, I would. You're somehow dismissing all these things as somehow negative, though. And I, I think you could couch each of these terms quite differently. Well, okay, but I mean, my concern with that is to do with productive energy, and in contrast to this, yeah. The women that you seem to be talking to are either community activists, oh, yeah? leaders, these kind of things. They have a very different perspective yeah. in terms women, of their relationship. Listen. Yeah, I'm so glad I'm a man because the whole concept of having a man for a lover is the most pathetic thing I can imagine. <laughs> like this women, little child, this little women are creature. women are just far more interesting than most men, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're full of shit too, but but uh, they're full of shit. Or again, it's statistical, but there's anyway. You're right. There's a big difference. But I think the Zeitgeist movement kind of polarizes that because on one side you have the and this is this is um, no, there really is isn't a zeitgeist movement. The fellow, what's the fellow's name? Joseph. Joseph. Peter Joseph. Peter Joseph. But, yeah. Okay. So this is the kind of um, in Australia, I had this term, the misunderstood intellectual, which was this kind of you know dark you know, room emerging, you know, occasionally. Um, you know, this this thing that ultimately the women that I knew in Australia found, oh, you know, he needs to be nurtured, whatever, he's just a misunderstood intellectual and all those kind of things. And I could never see that in these men. They were just, I don't know, they just had some uh, depressive elements associated with them that ultimately, you know... The, and they were probably cute. Mm, to, well, no, this is the funny thing. They were like little boys as far as I was concerned. Oh, okay, anyway. yeah. Anyway, yeah. so moving aside from that, I think... The there are um, there are active there are kind of proactive leadership types that are men 
that do have a lot of the characteristics of the women that uh, you've talked to in the zeitgeist movement as well. They just don't appear to be in the zeitgeist movement. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've, you know, I've been cultivating a, a particular group of people there. Ah, this is the other thing. You're right. You're absolutely right. You yeah. are doing the selection. That's right. I pretty much. I mean, I'm not. I don't select who's there. I mean, they find their way to the room. Yeah. But I listen to what they're saying, and and if, like I say, uh, you've heard me give my rap about reading or greening their names. Yes, uh, you know, so when I hear people who are who appear to be like really seriously questioning stuff or asking good hard questions or, you know, of some sense appealing to me for whatever reason, uh, I turn them green and those people end up in my room. So I often there with, you know, 15 people and 12 of the names are are green. So is there, is there a neutral color or is it just red and gray? No, that's all the the software allows. You can friend somebody or block them. And yes. if you friend them, then their name turns green. And if you block them, their name turns red. So I've got probably probably 50 greens and three reds. It's interesting. You're exactly right. You are the selector. You are the selector. Well, but like I say, it also depends on it's they're they're selecting too. True, true. You know, we're all selecting. I'm not just selecting them; we're selecting each other. So, and some of them go. I've got 50 names that I've turned green. There's only about probably 15 that I recognize now. So my project is to find a like-minded group associated with education probably on Facebook that would be sympathetic to do something similar with you in an audio format. I think that is a tremendous idea. Your your intelligence astounds me. How you come up with these brilliant yeah. ideas is just <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, if I didn't think Heron was joking, I would uh, tell him to stop at this point. <laughs> If I didn't, if I didn't no, I hadn't thought of it, man. I'm pretty fucking... Headphones. Listen, I'm pretty smart, and I didn't think of it. <laughs> uh, yes, Heron. My wife does the same thing to me. You know, I'm... I'm, 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 done, I'm having this done through from all sides. Um, <laughs> I don't think it should be difficult. I think the main thing is just uh, your own level of interest more than anything. Uh, well, I think we uh, need to... Uh, it needs to be... You know, like the model rail thing. I think there needs to be a really specific niche here. Yeah. It's something that people can identify with. And my sense is it's parents with a bunch of money uh, who are dissatisfied with uh, their children's education and they care deeply about those children and they understand the world is changing. So the description of charter schools that are given within inner city Chicago seems to indicate that it's not... The money is not the important part. Well, this gonna they're gonna have to pay for it. I mean, they don't. I don't know how much. Well, the state the, that's pays for business. charter schools now too. I mean, that's well, but we're not talking about getting involved with the state. Fuck the state. <laughs> well, that's exactly what the creationist schools say too, and they still get the state's money. So, yeah, but well, but if you got to jump through their hoops, then well, if you want to jump through those hoops, then we'll hire somebody to jump through those hoops. I don't really care about that, actually. Okay. I mean, the relationship with the government is, as far as I'm concerned, irrelevant. And anyone in the organization who wants to deal with that is welcome to do it. I guess my point <laughs> about it is is that the, ability, the amount of money that the parents have... 
Ah, well, that you, I, yeah, I see immediately. You're saying, yeah, if, if we had the money from the state, then the parents wouldn't have to pay for exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, and that would uh, greatly expand. Well, that okay. And the other way is to just in the beginning, since there's only it's going to be small, to to start with uh, people who can pay for it, even though it's a smaller group. Uh, there's probably plenty there to get started, and you don't have to play with the state. Hmm. For folks so, listening in, this is the reason that I couldn't actually write a book with Heron. I mean, I, this was exactly the point associated with the notion of relationships to money and also relationships of value based on that, that I think was, from our earliest discussions, that I found problematic, but you have kind of embraced, <laughs> basically. And I think ultimately that is where our social theories quite distinctly divide, because my view is that... Um, Really, one has to think of these things in terms of pluralities and work out these things after the fact, whereas you have a focus on this as part of the starting point. Um, I'm not quite sure what you just said. I'm talking about the notion that parents that have money will have money to contribute to this, thus they have the initial input, whereas my view would be to create something which was less tangibly focused on the amount of money that could be contributed initially and more focused on the, uh, you know, the aims of the organization with the view that money has a strange way. Oh, obviously you have to, well, obviously you have to get the correct, you know, you have to actually have something before even talking about that issue. You're right. If we actually had a curriculum, the issue would be, what do we do now? Yeah. You know, and I, but like I say that's sort of not worth talking about at this point because there is no curriculum. True. So, but, but you're right. Yeah, I don't know. But parents with money. So the, the whole well, no, there are parents with money. There are lots of parents with lots of money in some areas. Hmm. There are there are more millionaires on, in the United States now than there have ever been before, and not even millionaires. There are lots of people who make US lots of money. Is worth nothing. Pardon. Because the U.S. currency has been depressed. Well, it doesn't make any difference. There are people who are living who can spend a couple hundred bucks a month for a year, and it's not going to kill them. Yeah, that's really because I mean, that. My sense is it shouldn't be more than. A, I mean, if it's arranged properly, it shouldn't be very expensive to administer and deal with, and do most of it through the web. So, you know, it 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 should be um, it shouldn't be that expensive. Couple hundred, like I say, maybe a couple hundred a month for a, a year, for a year-long program, maybe a little more. I don't know. That depends on stuff that I can't predict, don't know about. Mm. And that's not that much money. Well, yes, I think um, it is a little relative. However, I mean, you couldn't afford that, could you? No, of course not. No, but there are lots of people who can. I mean, I know lots of people who, if they wanted to, uh, could afford two hundred dollars a month for a year. Yeah. You know, if they thought it was worth their while, that's the point. Is you got to make a case that that they can really relate to. And I think the the important part of the case is the person that turns around and charges three hundred a month. You know, the the value is not actually in the money. The value no, it has no that has nothing to do with it. No, it's just how much money can you get out of it if that's the way you're looking at it. And that's certainly one of the things to consider. I mean, I, I, my view, and this is again where we diverge, <coughs> is that I wouldn't consider that even in any kind of introductory narrative associated with forming this thing, because ultimately the curriculum and the way in which the curriculum engages people immediately 
is by far more important than how this... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is all, like I said, this is a pointless discussion until there's a curriculum. Exactly. When there's a curriculum, that'll probably tell a lot about how to, how to deal with it. Mm. Yeah. This is good. Man, this is great. Thank you. <laughs> well, Heron, I'm, I'm going to have to leave you at this point to think about this more this evening. I've, I've got a lot of squish-related stuff to get on, oh. uh, including uh. to get some more code out and, and a wide variety of other things. But, Heron, it's been a pleasure as always. I, we will reconvene maybe in a week, maybe two weeks. Maybe I'll have some good news in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but no doubt we will be in three <laughs> different places no matter when we talk. Um, that's probably correct. Okay. Unless, of course, it's not. <laughs> Have a good evening, Heron. Take care. Good, good night. You.